Well, I imagine at one time or another, you probably found yourself saying or, or maybe thinking, I'll get you for this. You'll be sorry you have ever treated me that way. Or maybe you'll wish you had never been born. Those things may not have come from your mouth. Maybe you thought it. Maybe you heard it from other people. But when, when people mistreat us, we instinctively want revenge. We want to get back at them. We want to get even. Or to show them how it feels, what they did to us. And someone, someone once dumped a large load of garbage on a man's private property. While looking through the garbage, the man found the offender's name and the address on an envelope. So he quickly loaded up the garbage, drove it to the person's house, and dumped the mess in his front yard. <laughs> you think it's justified? I'll leave that for you to figure that out after we look through this chapter 25. But I, I came across some uh, warnings that, that you see on, on merchandise and uh, products. Maybe you've seen these warnings as well. On a Duraflame fireplace log, those logs that you can just start by a little match, it says, caution, risk of fire. Good to know. Good to know. On a Batman costume, it says, warning, cape does not enable user to fly. That's good advice, too. Good warning. And on a bottle of hair coloring, <laughs> I don't understand this, but on a bottle of hair coloring, the warning says, do not use as an ice cream topping. You know... Most of these warnings come from people who probably have done these things. And uh, you got to keep that in mind too, I guess. But on a cardboard uh, sunshield for a car, do not drive with sunshield in place. That makes sense to me. Uh, and then one, uh, one last warning on a portable stroller. I don't know, uh, the Laytons need to watch out for this, but caution, remove infant before folding for storage. <laughs> Where's Josh? Oh no, where'd he go? <laughs> Good thing for those warnings, right? Well, as we, as we read today's passage of Scripture in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, I think the following warning could be added to this chapter. It would say, Do not let one man's folly be the cause of your own folly. Just because someone's a fool, don't let that rub off on you and be a fool yourself. David became really upset because of a certain man's actions, and David very nearly acted in a way that could have been disastrous for him. Thankfully, the Lord intervened in David's life. And we're going to see this kind of unfold today. And what I'd like to do is something a little different than what I've done before. I'd like to unfold this by going through the different portions of this scripture and walking through these verses to see how this chapter is going to kind of unfold and give some comments along the way and then, of course, application at the end. And maybe, maybe a little application along the way, but I trust also, too, that the Holy Spirit will just continue to speak to your hearts about these different portions of Scripture, and maybe you'll kind of get tapped on the shoulder or maybe slapped in the face, however the Holy Spirit needs to get your attention, to be able to help you see and understand He's trying to teach you something here. So, 1 Samuel chapter 25, uh, let's look at verse, starting with verse 1, of course, great place to start. And it starts off pretty interesting, kind of abrupt. And it's a sad day in Israel. In verse 1 it says, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. So you have Samuel's death here in this uh, verse. Uh, this really it, it is a sad moment. It's the last of the judges. This is the last of an era uh, in Israel. 
and Samuel passes away, and they have this, this uh, great assembly going on. Seems like there should be more, though, to this than just, now Samuel died. <laughs> we, we hear all about him through this, up to this point, and all that he did, and trying to help Saul, and following after God, and making sure that things are right in Israel. And then we get these three words, now Samuel died. Um, it seems pretty abrupt. He was one of the greatest men in Israel's history, and his death was a great loss to the nation of Israel. The funeral and mourning at his death was a great and fitting tribute to Samuel, but it could also be a, a, a delinquent and hypocritical tribute as well. A, a great tribute in that all the Israelites were gathered together and mourned for him. The whole nation came to a standstill, standstill for this funeral, like it kind of does when a president uh, passes away in our country. And I think the last one that happened was uh, Ronald Reagan, wasn't it? Was JFK. JFK. But what? Bush. Oh, yes, yes, yes. My thoughts, so go back to Ronald Reagan and all that. It, was just, it, it impresses upon me, just all that went on with that. But yeah, of course, Bush as well. But a fitting tribute. Everyone shows up, everyone comes to this, and the whole area just stops. Kind of showing Samuel's greatness in this. It was a fitting tribute as well in, this great, in that great men should receive this kind of tribute at death. All, we all should stop and pause and give this kind of tribute to the great men like this. But it was also a delinquent tribute in that during Samuel's lifetime, the Israelites did not pay due respect to Samuel. They rejected his counsel regarding the king and in general disregarded him as well. It was too late when they realized his value. You know, in the same way, we need to give honor and tribute to people before they die not just after they have died. Make that phone call. Uh, send that note. Let them know how much you appreciate them, how much you love them, how much value they have to you. It was also a, a hypocritical tribute as well, too, in that much, uh, in much of the mourning and honor for Samuel at his death was really not so sincere. And you might ask, why do I think that? Well, the people went on their wicked ways after he died. They didn't make any changes. They tri gave tribute to him, but it was kind of hypocritical. And like many in our day, they eulogized great spiritual leaders, but were careful not to follow their examples or their exhortations. And here we also see that David lost a pretty good friend. And his move reflected the fact that in Samuel's death, he had lost a great friend and supporter and protector, which is a key thing here. This meant that Saul could become even more dangerous to David because Saul would feel less restraint in doing evil now that Samuel was gone. Samuel was kind of like his conscience. So when Samuel died, it was as if Saul's conscience died a bit more. So we have this danger happening now, and, and so David moves on. And so in verse 2, follow with me there, we'll see the cast of characters kind of unfolding here. A couple of them that we see new here on the scene, one that we know of, David. But uh, look at verses 2 and 3 with me. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings, he was a Calebite. So here we have uh, these new, two new characters coming on the scene here. Nabal, 
when we first meet this guy, we learn that he was a, a man in Mayon uh, who, whose business was in Carmel. So he was very wealthy, had property there. And right away, that tells us he's probably got some bucks. He's probably pretty well off. In fact, it says uh, in, in the, uh, the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew word is, he was, is heavy, heavy in these finances, heavy in wealth. The guy was loaded, and Nabal had a lot of money. It says he owned 3,000 sheep, he owned 1,000 uh, goats. He was clearly a man of great riches. By the way, uh, his name was very appropriate. If you've looked in your Bible already, you saw the little Bible study notes, you're already ahead of me with this. But uh, Nabal means fool. Fool. So we're, it's going to play out for us here in this chapter. But understand that th that didn't mean a person was just simple-minded. In the Scriptures, a fool was a person who said there is no God. He lived his life as though there were no God, and, he, and we are told that the man was harsh, and that that means he was dishonest. So you got a, quite a combination in this guy. Nabal was demanding, he was deceptive, and he was unfair. Uh, not a kind of person you really want to rub shoulders with too much. You get probably irritated by this guy pretty quickly. Then his wife was just the opposite. Her name was Abigail, and Scripture tells us that she was both intelligent and beautiful. Literally, it says she had good understanding and a beautiful form. She was lovely within and without. And Abigail was very wise. Her decisions made good sense. She was governed not by her emotions, but by good, logical thinking. She was a keen, thinking, intelligent woman. If that weren't enough, she was good-looking too. And I would think that if you put Abigail and another person we know of from the Old Testament named Esther in a room together, you'd probably go, ah, they look like their cousins are related because they both kind of had the same kind of thing going on. Now talk about contrast between two people, Nabal and, and Abigail. Their temperaments were different. Their behavior is different. Their attitudes are different. Their philosophies are different. The way they treat others is different. It's interesting to see how the, this woman dealt with her belligerent, belligerent, stubborn, hard, deceptive, and dishonest husband. And probably the question that pops in your mind right now, though, is saying, how did these two ever get together? <laughs> well, how did they get attracted to each other? You've got to remember that in those days and in that culture, arranged marriages were very, pretty, very common. And uh, you know, let's just say Abigail's father probably got a nice dowry from Nabal, although probably not as nice as he should have received, knowing Nabal. And then there's David. We know about him, but he, he's the, well, he has well-trained men, though, who have been doing their voluntary police work in the fields of uh, Paran in the wilderness near Carmel. So David and his men are out there kind of patrolling the area. Look with me on verse 4, 4 through 8. We'll see here a very kind request for payment of services. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time when your shepherds were... With us, we did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. 
Therefore, be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. And please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. So while the official fighting of, of Israel was done by, by the army under Saul's command, you have David here with his 600 guerrilla fighters who have been behind the scenes fighting uh, various wild tribes in, in the wilderness of Paran. And as a result, they were also protecting these shepherds from the attack of wild tribes that would suddenly overrun an area, would steal livestock, and assault small villages. And according to the customs of that, that day, at the time the, the sheep were sheared, it was common for the owner of the animals to set aside a portion of the profit he made and give it to those who had protected his shepherds. It was kind of like tipping a waiter, doing, you know, letting appreciating them for the service they gave. There was no written law saying you had to do it, but it was a way of showing gratitude for a job well done. Thank you for for keeping our shepherds safe and our sheep alive and with us, and, and here's my gratitude. So David and his men had been faithfully watching out for the flocks of this man named Nabal, and, and word reached him that he was shearing his sheep, so it's payday. When the sheep shearing happens, that means there's going to be some funds coming in. And it stands to reason, David thinks, that after the careful protection he and his men had provided, it is only fair that they receive some kind of some kind of payment. But the problem is, as we go and we see where this is going to come from, it's Nabal. And Nabal's a stingy man, and he won't pay up. He won't do it. Let's see here in verses 9 through 11. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. It's kind of funny. You think about that. They're, they're, they're telling everything that David said, and then they just kind of step back and go, and waiting. Kind of like that bellhop that takes you up to your room, puts luggage there in your, in your room, and then stands by the door and goes like this. <laughs> I think the men here are kind of waiting to see what Nabal's going to do. And so read on. It says, Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? Pretty gracious guy. <laughs> Pretty gracious guy. Notice how many times he says, my. Guess where his eyes were on. It was on they were on himself. I, my, mine. Now, here's where everything breaks loose. Remember, this is David, our hero, the same guy who months before refused to retaliate or fight back, even when Saul was trying to kill him. Remember, this is David who chose to not take revenge upon Saul in that cave when he could have. This is David, master model of patience. Now, and, and you think about it too, and some of you are kind of reading ahead as well right now, finding out what's going on. But maybe the men hit David with Nabal's response at a bad time. And let's face it, you know, when men are, are hungry, they're a little testy. They want the food. They want to the, feel, feel their stomach full. They're not themselves. They might just need a Snickers, right? But maybe David's got the fire going. He can, he can already just taste those shish kebabs, the onions, the green peppers, and the roasting mutton. But this, this guy 
his guys show up empty-handed. They come back and it's like, sorry. And here's where the anger explodes. Look with me in verse 12 and 13. David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did. And David strapped, on, strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David, while, the, while 200 stayed with the supplies. <laughs> 400 men. That should about do it, I think. 400 men to go after this uh, guy named Nabal. When you overdo something, it's like killing a cockroach with a shotgun. <laughs> you might kill the cockroach, but you certainly blow the wall out at the same time. Nobody puts on a sword just to have a discussion. So we have a pretty good idea what's going through David's mind here. But talk about overkill. There's no need to take 400 men to squash one little tightwad. But David has lost control. Alan Redpath, an author, uh, writes about David in this situation in his book entitled The Making of the Man of God. Kind of has like a, a little conversation with David in his book. He says, David, David, what is wrong with you? Why, one of the most wonderful things we have learned about you recently is your patience with Saul. You learned to wait upon the Lord. You're, you're, uh, you're refused to lift your hand to touch the Lord's anointed, although he had been your enemy for so many years. But now look at you. Your self-restraint has gone to pieces and a, result, and, a, and a few insulting words from a fool of a man like Nabal has made you see red. David, what's the matter? I'm justified in doing this, David would reply. There is no reason why Nabal should treat me as he has. He has repaid all my kindness with insults. I will show him he can't tri trifle with me. It is one thing to take it from Saul, who is my superior at this point, but this sort of man, this high-handed individual, must be taught a lesson. Does that sound kind of familiar maybe in your life? As you have encountered people who thought they could just mess you up, take you for all that you're worth? Do you have people in your life maybe that mistreat you from a superior standpoint and you have learned to take it because they're your boss? But then when it comes to those who, who are below you who mistreat you, do you feel that they need to learn a lesson because you're here and they're there? They need to know where you're at in this level. They need to show you some respect right away, right? But the thing is, respect is earned and never taken. And respect is harder to come by with the sword, but easier to gain through a humble and godly spirit. With the sword, that respect will be driven by fear. With, with the humble and godly spirit, that respect will equal loyal love. Anyway, back at the ranch, put yourself in Abigail's sandals right now. Frankly, this... <laughs> This could be her opportunity to get rid of an obnoxious loser of a husband. She gets word from the servants that David is going to finish him off. And she could say something spiritual like, Oh, I, I better pray about this. And those thundering hoofbeats that are coming down the hill, and, and she's in there, she's praying, Lord, take him swiftly. <laughs> Make it painless. It's her chance. After all, Nabal was set, has set himself up for this. It's time he learned a lesson, right? This scoundrel. 
That's the way a carnal wife or a carnal husband thinks. That's the way a carnal employee thinks if you look at David and Nabal. Now it's my chance. Now it's my chance. He's vulnerable and it's all his fault anyway. Now it's my chance to put him in his place. Well, instead, notice what happens here in verses 14 through 17. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at, at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. And the whole time we were out in the, in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. So here comes a message to Abigail. And notice that the messengers come to her and not Nabal. And why? Because he's unapproachable. He wouldn't listen to them. That's another indication of Abigail's wisdom. She's, she sees her husband for, for what he is. She knows his weaknesses. And in his weakest moment, Abigail did not fight. She protected. What a gracious person. What a wise person. Look with me in verses 18 and 19. It says, Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seas of uh, roasted uh, grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and two hundred cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. Wow, that's a lot of food all of a sudden. Meals on wheels instantly. But can you believe this woman? She provided all of this food, and she didn't even tell her husband that this was going away. Now, some of the best counsel a man can get comes from his wife who knows him better than anybody else on earth. And right now, I probably should be getting some amens from the wives today. The finest kind of constructive help and direction and even exhortation often comes from our mates. They know what to do, when to do it, and they usually do it with the right intention. Sometimes a wife needs to act in favor of her husband and not say a word to him. And here's a classic case in point right here in this chapter. For Abigail to approach her obstinate, foolish husband would have been instant suicide. He'd never have let her send this stuff to David. And then David would come upon them and it would be all over. So she went ahead and did it on his behalf. And notice that she didn't act in secret against him. She acted without his knowledge, yet in his favor. She ran interference for the man, and in doing so, she saved his life, literally. Now, picture all of this happening. You've got David and his men all coming full tilt down the hill towards this place. You've got Abigail and her servants are hurrying to bring the supplies out to David and to his men. And here we, we come to a meeting here. Verse 20 through 22 as she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, It's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness, so that nothing of, the, of his was missing. 
He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. Wow. David. Pretty crazy. Kind of ironic. Kind of ironic to witness David like this after hearing about Saul looking to eliminate David from all existence, no matter what it takes. And the oath he makes? <laughs> really? Think about what he's saying. Punish me, Lord, if I don't follow through and spill innocent blood. <laughs> Help me with this, Lord. That ranks up there with Saul's oath to, to kill Jonathan back in chapter 14. Because Jonathan ate uh, honey when Saul commanded the army to fast. Don't eat anything. Jonathan ate something. That ranks up there with the oath that Jephthah made in Judges chapter 11, telling, that, telling God that if he gave him victory over the Ammonites, he would sacrifice the first thing to welcome him when he returned home, and that thing was his only daughter. You can safely say that David's anger and his rage has blinded him to any sensibility. Punish me, Lord, if I don't murder somebody. Just silly. And that's what anger kind of does sometimes. It just drives us out of our mind. We're just not thinking straight. Well, look with me in verses 23 through 25. Here we, we hear a, a perfect plea. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my lord sent. So Abigail had already thought through what she was going to do and what she was going to say. All the way up there, she was writing. And that's the practical side of wisdom. She knew exactly what approach she would take when she encountered David. It wasn't just a, a shoot-from-the-hip kind of situation. It was a thought-through plan. And three things stand out about her here. It's her tact, it's her faith, and it's her, it's her loyalty as well. First, she fell on her face before David. And, and look at her tact. She calls herself your servant. And she calls David my lord throughout her whole plea. This woman is a study in wisdom and how to deal with conflict. She knew her husband, didn't she? Everyone knew what he was like, so why hide it anyway? Why try to cover up what he had done? And, and she didn't. She didn't cover it up. And yet she took the responsibility upon herself, as you notice here in these verses. Basically, she was saying, when you sent those ten men and they had that interaction with my husband, I wasn't there to give another kind of of response. But I'm here now as an advocate, and I'd like to stand as a mediator between the two of you guys, who have been, uh, especially your men, who have been unjustly treated, un, uh, unjustly treated. And so look here in verses 26 through 28, the kind of plea she gives. She says, And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives, and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed, and from avenging yourself with your own hands. May your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal, and let, his, and let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption, 
the Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Wow, wow, what, what faith we see here in Abigail. She says, David, as I look at you, I'm looking at the next king. Don't ruin your record with a murder. You're bigger than that, David. You've been wrong, but murder isn't the answer. Just wait. Just wait. Take what I provided and turn around and go back. And then verse 29. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lies of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Hmm. Good choice words there, Abigail. Abigail reminds David of God's protection and the provision in his life. And as you notice those last words in the end of verse 29, I would think that David would have been reminded of his experience with Goliath and God's provision there as well. Man, Abigail, you're good. You're good. And then verses 30 and 31, When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord, David, every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, and here's Abigail's faith, knowing that he's going to be ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself, and when the Lord your God has brought my Lord's success, remember your servant. So Abigail here is saying, you'll have to live with that track record, David. You don't need that when you become king. Don't do it. It's not worth it. What a speech. What a, what a plea. And when you're faced with critical decisions, sometimes you have to do something very creative. Apart from the Bible, you know, there's no handbook that tells you what to do when those times come. Nabal's life hung in the balance. His wife realized that depending on how short David's fuse was, that's how long Nabal's life would be. She decided it will take a lot of food and a pleading message from me to turn that man's heart. And she was right. And we can be certain that along the way she prayed fervently for God to intervene. Often when we are faced with a crisis... The standard answer, the standard reaction is sort of kind of tuck your tail between your legs, run into a corner, and stay there until cobwebs kind of form on you. Just run, hide, just get away from it. But there is a better way. As long as you have breath in your lungs, you have a purpose for living, you have a reason to exist. No matter how bad that track record might have been, marked by disobedience and compromise for most of your life, you're alive. You're existing, and God says, there's a reason, and I'm willing to do creative things through you to put you back on your feet. You can lick your wounds if that's your choice, but there's a better way. And it will take creativity. It will take re uh, determination. It will take constant eyes on the Lord. But when He pulls it off, it's a marvelous thing. That's what Abigail did with, his, with this crisis. She just says, remember your servant when the tide turns in your, in your life. That's all I ask. Just remember me. Verse 32. Here's his reaction. David said to Abigail, praise be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. What a guy. <laughs> Here's this guy who's ready to 
mow down Nabal and the rest of his family and take what, is his, what should be his. And he stops and he gives praise. What's going on here? Is it any wonder God chose David as a man after his own heart? What a teachable spirit. He's got a sword ready to be unsheathed, yet he looks at this woman he's never met before, and he listens to her without interrupting, and he changes his entire demeanor. Talk about a man after God's heart. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons he, he was willing to change. Besides, he, how can any hungry, man, <laughs> hungry guy get mad at a woman with a crock? pot full of hot food. She's got all this stuff there. How can you get angry when you see all this wonderful food? But may God forever keep us flexible and teachable. Someone might have a word at the right moment regarding a blind spot in our lives. And we're nothing more than dummies, maybe even Nabal-ish, if we ignore him or ignore her. And David models genuine humility here. And then he says in verses 33 through 35, follow along with me here, it says, May you be blessed for your, God, for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted her hand, or accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. So, mission accomplished. Everybody wins. David and his men go back full of food, all the wiser. Abigail goes home. And her husband puts his arm around her and says, Honey, thanks. You're a great lady. I'm glad, so blessed to have you as my wife. That part, not so much. It's not exactly what Nabal does. Look with me in verses 36 through 37. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in, a, he was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. Then... In the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things. Everything that was going on, all the stuff that she encountered, what she did. And look at the reaction. And his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. What does that all mean? Well, she, stood, she had stood between her husband and death, but the fool was so drunk she couldn't even tell him about it that night. So she crawled in bed, pulled up the covers, went to sleep. She must have poured out her heart to God and got things squared away between herself and the Lord, realizing she might not even know what it was like to have a husband who appreciated her. And then the next morning, after Nabal sobered up, she told him what had happened. And his reaction, the guy had a stroke. The guy had a stroke. Literally, she scared him to death. He listened to the story of how 401 guys were on the way to cut off his head, and he got really still. His eyes became glazed. I would imagine so. If you were told about how close you came to death in the situation, you'd probably be, be reacting in, in a really tragic way. But then 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Verse 38. 
Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? When you do what is right without tiring of it, God takes care of the impossible things. Here was Abigail, beautiful, inside and out, married to this guy who was just a creep. Here was David, very honorable, very teachable, man after God's heart. Nabal got under his skin. He was, a, he was kind of a thorn in, in David's side. Coming to take care of it, Abigail intervened. But you still had this Nabal guy who probably was going to do something else again, causing problems, not doing what he should be doing, not caring for his wife, not loving her as he should. There still was going to be that issue, the impossibility. But God took care of it. <laughs> God took care of it. It's amazing. As we saw in chapter 24, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. There is no impossible situation that God cannot handle. Whatever you are facing, whatever situation is in your life, you think it's an impossibility? Think again. If you've given it over to God, if you allow Him to work through your life, if you anticipate how He's going to answer this impossibility, you, you hold on tight. He won't handle it necessarily your way, but he'll handle it. He'll handle it. Seeing Abigail's faithfulness, God led, let her spend the, the night depending on him, and then shortly after that, she buried her husband. And listen to David's response when he heard that Nabal was dead. Verse 39. It says, Praise be to the Lord, who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Wow. Now, did David learn a lesson? Blessed be God. He kept me from murdering this guy, from doing evil. I don't have to fight that kind of battle. That's God's job. If vengeance is required, it is God's to do. And notice the contrast between the reaction here at the very beginning of this chapter about Samuel's death. Everyone came together. Everyone was mourning, cared for this guy. And then Nabal's death. Yay, he's gone. The wicked witch is dead. And for both Abigail and David, this story has a happy ending. When he learns that Nabal is dead, David sends a marriage proposal to Abigail, and she accepts. And he's named right off into the sunset, right? But we can learn something here from each of these three people mentioned in today's Scripture. I think we can learn a number of things, but one thing I think we can learn from Abigail, follow her example of a peacemaker. Oh my goodness. <laughs> a wisdom, knowing how to say things, when to say it, and a timing. Follow her example of a peacemaker. David, follow his example of being teachable. There are moments where we might think we are right, and no one's going to change our mind. Uh, reserve that little area to be teachable because there could be a moment where you might be wrong. Maybe. And follow his, uh, David's example of being teachable. Nabal, um, don't be this kind of guy. <laughs> just don't be this kind of guy. It doesn't end well. It just doesn't end well. I believe there are four things though, that we need to consider as we think about this incident in the life of David. Four things we can take away from this chapter. I'm sure you can probably take more than just four things, but let me give you at least four. First of all, whatever you do when conflicts arise, 
be wise. Be wise whenever conflicts arise. If you're not careful, you will handle conflicts in the energy of the flesh, in your own strength, and then you'll be sorry. And what is meant by being wise in this? Look at the whole picture. Fight against jumping to quick conclusions and seeing only your side. Look both ways. Weigh the differences. There are always two sides on the streets of conflict. Look both ways. Weigh the differences. The other part of being wise is to pray. Get God's perspective. He gives us the wisdom we need when we ask Him for it. So whatever you do, when conflicts arise, be wise. Secondly, take each conflict as it comes and handle it separately. Take each conflict as it comes and handle it separately. You may have won a battle yesterday, but that doesn't count when today's skirmish comes. It's great to go on memory on those things, but don't think that you've conquered that, you're going to conquer this too. You can't use the same resources sometimes with the different conflicts that happen. You may have a great measure of uh, patience today, but it makes no difference tomorrow when the attack comes again. Will you have that same amount of patience? God doesn't give you credit on patience. Every day is a new day, and we learn each time. So take each conflict as it comes and handle it separately. The third thing we can take away from this experience in the life of David is that whenever you realize that there's nothing you can do, wait. Whenever you realize there's nothing that you can do, wait. Wait patiently. Impossible impasses call for a firm application of brakes. <laughs> Stop. Stop. Don't keep banging into that wall over and over and over again. Don't keep going. Restrain yourself from anything hasty. Slow down. Whenever possible, put on the brakes. Seldom have there been wise decisions made in a hurry. And seldom have there been feelings of remorse for things not said. If you didn't say it, you're probably not going to be sorry for it. And finally, there's a fourth reason, or a fourth lesson we can get from this, especially in these last two chapters, if you include chapter 24 in this. Um, the Lord is repeatedly trying to drive home to David, and I, I think to us as well. And David needed reassurance that the Lord would eventually accomplish vengeance against Saul for the way he treated David just as the Lord had executed his vengeance against Nabal. So without this reassurance, David would be tempted to avenge himself against Saul. So we too need to trust God to deal with our enemies, to deal with those situations, those people in our life that we think, oh, they just need to be taught a lesson. I'm going to get them back. I'm going to, I'm going to tell them a thing or two about this. Rather than seeking revenge or ways to get even, give it over to God. He's the one supposed to avenge. So is there someone who has recently mistreated you? Now that we have journeyed through this, uh, this chapter 25, how will this affect your attitude and actions toward that person, whoever has wronged you? I encourage you to take time to pray for that person. That's probably going to be the hardest thing because you might want to be praying, Lord, <laughs> take them down, remove them, like you did Nabal. That might not happen. 
But ask the Lord for grace to show love toward the person and to entrust the matter into God's hands. Give to God. Allow Him to avenge. I'm going to invite the worship team coming up. They're going to lead us in a couple songs. As they do, let me close with this portion of Scripture I think is very appropriate for this the, uh, for 1 Samuel chapter 25, as, as well as chapter 24. It's found in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. And I encourage you to write it down, look it up. Good one to keep in mind, good one to memorize. Paul writes these words, he says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you need to do some praying with God? Do you need to do some business with Him? The altar is open if you want to come pray as we sing these last two songs. I just encourage you that if God has spoken to you some way, uh, today in the last 60 minutes or, or so that you respond in obedience and however God is uh, talking to you.